and welcome back to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you full of the holiday spirit here in Central Kentucky. And this is Season 5, Episode 1. Yes, that's right. After a brief hiatus for coaching at least two and a half youth sports, dodging deadlines like they had sticky hands, and a quick trip to Bandon Dunes in August, we're back, and I'm behind the control board here at the Blind Shots Podcast. Uh, This season, you'll hear some familiar voices talking about both timely and timeless ideas, at least tangentially connected to golf. I've got a few episodic ideas that I'll be publishing here, all of which hopefully stand the test of time and without the staleness that attaches to hot takes on the issue of the day. Ironically, however, today's episode probably walks up as close to the line uh, without going over as we'll get here. Today, I'm honored to welcome Nathan Crace to the podcast. Uh, he's going to help talk through and help me understand the much ballyhooed decision by the United States Golf Association to quote unquote roll back the golf ball. Uh, just a level set for everybody the USGA is changing the swing speed at which it tests one of their aspects of whether a specific golf ball model will be deemed conforming under its rules and guidelines and a whole bunch of technical jargon that we should leave to the engineers. What does that mean for us, the the normal golfer, and what will it mean specifically for my game? Well, that's why I'm bringing in Mr. Case. Uh, To describe Nathan by his profession or his passions probably does him a disservice. Uh, He is immensely and varied in his talents. He's a professional landscape architect, Uh, and is a board member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, appointed in, or elected, I'm not sure how they do that, in 2020. Um, He's the principal owner of Watermark Golf, under which that's his design shop. Uh, That's where he builds and rebuilds and redesigns golf courses. He's been doing that for the better part of three decades. Uh, In that time, he's also been the author of uh, the fictional thriller Vincent Vino, available for Moonbay Media. He also uh, formerly used to keep a regular column. He'd write a regular column that would be published in various uh, magazines and and regional publications and in the trades. Uh, So he's a known commodity. He uh, is multi-talented. And before all of that, he came up through the uh, playing side of golf. He is a graduate of Mississippi State University a couple of times. First, I think, through their um, professional golf management program. And he was an assistant pro at uh, several clubs that you would have heard of. Prominent clubs in Kentucky and Mississippi. So I thought uh, being coming up through the playing and teaching side and then being in the dirt building and redesigning golf courses for the last 30 years, I thought he might be uniquely positioned to help me understand what this golf ball rollback business is going to be. Uh, before we dive in, a reminder as always that there are no corporate sponsors or paid endorsers. Here's the Blind Shots podcast, though I'm obviously open to that kind of conversation, good capitalist that I am. Nonetheless, I can bring you this soul-nourishing content free of charge without requiring you to take illicit drugs uh, because of my day job as David Hill, the realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors here in Lexington, Kentucky. I help people buy and sell their homes, and I help businesses and investors uh, find their next investment or offload their properties, whatever their needs may be. It's still a very interesting time to be a realtor and a great time to be a homeowner. So if you want to know what's happening around our market here, please reach out. You can email me at davidhill at rhr.com 
and I'll be happy to start a conversation with you. Now, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with golf's Nathan Crace, who implores me to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show are his and his alone, just like mine expressed here are mine and mine alone. He is not speaking for anyone else and most certainly is not giving an official opinion from the ASGCA. They are actually neutral on this issue of technology, equipment, uh, and the golf ball rollback that we're going to be discussing. So with that, I bring you Nathan Crace. Well, I'll start with this. I'll do a, a, a brief rundown of your bio, and I think everybody will enjoy you correcting all the stuff I get wrong on this. Uh, <laughs> joined by Nathan Crace, ASGCA. He is the principal of Watermark Golf out of Mississippi of these United States. Uh, he's got somewhere between 25 and 30 years experience as a professional golf course designer. He is a Now, the PLA, I, I get that wrong. That is a... License that is an architecture certification. Which, That's a professional professional landscape architect. It used to be registered landscape architect, and they they've changed it. Okay, so that's what I, I knew there was a change in there. Uh, that that artistic side of his brain works overtime. He's also has been a member of the Golf Writers Association of America. He is a published author. Um, he also came up through uh, Mississippi State's. A PGA management course at a time when that was a much more rare thing. I believe, uh, if I read correctly, uh, State had one of only three programs at the time when you came through. Yes, that was uh, that's correct. Yeah, uh, and he is from we we come from a, a common part of the world on the outskirts of Louisville, Kentucky. So, what I want to know, growing up, did you want to be Mo Dimling or Fuzzy Zeller? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it, my dad was a contractor and um, so I assumed I was going to be a contractor when I got older. Um, he didn't want me to do it. Didn't, didn't want me to do that. Um, <laughs> and he didn't play golf, you know, nobody played golf. So all the kids in Southern Indiana kind of, you know, you started kind of following fuzzy eventually. Um, but I really, my first taste of golf, uh, I stumbled onto the, uh, old Bing Crosby Pro-Am at Pebble Beach when I was probably I don't know, nine or 10 years old, back when there was only two hours of golf on Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And uh, there was this blonde haired guy who was really seemed to be just lashing the ball and having a good time and beating everybody else. And so I started to kind of gravitate toward him. And of course that was Jack Nicklaus. Um, so all the other kids that when I got a little older, you know, they were all into fuzzy Zeller and power built and all that. And I was, uh, following more closely with Jack and uh, had a Ram putter. So, you know, go figure. Ram putter. Were there McGregor blades that you had found somewhere? Uh, second. Not that, not that I could have, not that I could afford as a kid, <laughs> but you know, all the, everybody else had, um, you know, the, the hot new, well, it wasn't new at that. I guess it was sort of new at that time with the ping putters. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so this is the early, early to mid eighties. And, um, I saved up some money and wanted to be different than everybody else. So I got a Tom Watson edition, uh, Ram putter. And, um, I don't know why I just, I just wanted to be different, I guess. And, um, it didn't translate very well into more made putts. 
<clears throat> but anyway, I'm getting getting off topic. But yeah, so yes, grew up in Southern Indiana. But actually, born in Louisville. Um, grew up in the area all my life, and I tell people you you know that's true because I pronounce it Louisville and not Louisville. Right. There's um, Louisville's in Colorado and in Mississippi. Louisville's right, right. there. No, actually, it's even worse in Mississippi. It's Louisville, so it's even oh, more no. confusing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, even though it's spelled the same, <clears throat> but anyway. So yeah, that's that's where I grew up and. Um, uh, played a little, actually built a three hole golf course on my parents' property when I was 10 or 11, because there was no golf course in town. I grew up in a town called Charlestown, um, just pretty much right off the river and about maybe 10 miles, um, from, from downtown Louisville. And, um, after I outgrew that, I started playing at a little nine hole par three that I believe is now defunct in Jeffersonville called Twilight Golf Course. Uh, and then you know, eventually graduated from there and went on to Wooded View Golf Course, which is a parks golf course, part of the city of Parksville, that um, actually through a roundabout twist of fate and everything coming full circle, we're working on a master plan right now to um, to go in and make some improvements at, at Wooded View, which is fun for me, not only because it's where I grew up from. I played golf there almost exclusively from age, I don't know, 13 or 14 through college. Um, but now I get to go in and fix some of the things that even as a 16, 17 year old, I knew were messed up, uh, <laughs> in the design of the golf course, we get to go back and, and take a stab at fixing those now. So that, that'll be fun. Well, now that's a good jumping in point. Cause let me, let's think about this. When at you, when you were at your peak golf powers, late teenager, young adult there, you know, strapping young man that I'm sure you were. What was what was a big driver of the the golf ball? What was a long hitter? What did that look like in say the eighties? This is all before Pro V sure. before four hundred CC golf club you know driver heads you know right. What was the Jack Nicholas was you know he was the freak of that age in some respects because he was a big driver. But normal everyday golf high school college golf teams. What did a big hitter look like Nathan? Well, I had uh, let me. Let me dial back a little bit before that. So sure. my first real set of golf clubs was a Chichi Rodriguez starter set. It had a three, five, seven, nine putter and like a three wood. So as I got older and, and stronger and hit the ball better, um, a friend of my dad's, he was telling him that I was playing golf and he had some old golf clubs. He didn't play anymore. And um, they were in really bad shape and gave them to him. And we went and took them to a golf shop and had them, uh, refinished and everything. Well, it turns out they were power built citations. It was a one, two, four, and five wood, and they were beautiful. Um, I, I struggled with the driver, but I could really hit the two wood. And I think it's because it had a little more roll on the face, a little more loft. Um, and so all through high school, pretty much, I was playing with a citation two wood as a driver, and I could hit it out there pretty good with everybody else. The problem was because it was a smaller head um and i was taking a pretty good lash at it uh there you know i didn't really know what fairway it was coming down <laughs> but but i could move it out there and then a guy on our team who uh named brent smith who went on he's a year older than me uh went on to play golf at the university of louisville and actually his son is playing at georgia now um he had a tailor-made driver you know the old pittsburgh persimmon or uh, whatever model it was at that time and I was like, oh, this is what I need because I can really, really hit this one. You know, and that head was tiny. 
was very small. 200 um, cc's okay. even 180 maybe 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 yeah and so um that's really kind of transformed um the game and, and then at some point my high school golf coach uh read in golf digest a tip that he passed along to us and it really uh, kind of attached itself to me was in practice if you miss the fairway go get the ball walk back 10 yards and then go out and put it in the middle of the fairway from 10 yards further out and see how the golf course plays from the short grass and how much easier it is than trying to hack it out of the rough or, uh, you know, cut it around trees and all this other stuff. So that's when I really started to, you know, my freshman year in high school, I really kind of started to learn how to play the game and got a little more, a little more serious, a little more into it. Um, had never had a lesson until probably my junior year in high school um, when I kind of plateaued and I just couldn't seem to get any better. And I went and had a few lessons with Eddie Mudd, who was at Woodhaven, and uh, Jody Mudd's brother at, in uh, Louisville. And that, again, kind of opened my eyes because everything I had known up until that point, I read in Nicholas's Golf My Way book mm-hmm. and just watched golf on on the weekends and just kind of taught myself and then as I got older read golf digest and I would you know just read all of even if they didn't apply to my game I was reading reading everything um always had a pretty good short game but you know not good enough to go play college golf uh, by any stretch um division one you know may I might could have gone NAIA but that's not really what I wanted to do because I knew when I was 10 or 11 years old that I wanted to uh, be a golf course architect and, and in a roundabout way, that's how I ended up in Mississippi state. Gotcha. Uh, so when you were landing, you know, I came to golf as a washed up baseball player. When they handed me my high school diploma, my career was over. So I would go out with my JC Sneed signatures out to our local course, Maplehurst, may it rest in peace. And, you know, I would hit it as far <laughs> sideways as I would forward some days. It was kind of a flip a coin. No lessons, no instruction, just going out, you know, hitting. And that was the late 90s. So that was, you know, there were still a few, a lot of balls around, Um, you know, the top flights, the paint job on the top flights stayed brighter, longer. So I hit a lot of those rocks. Um, But I remember there was, uh, rarely would it get to the other fairway because when I was hitting with that old, uh, either the persimmon woods or the, the, the fairway metal, I guess you'd call it. You know, it would when I'd hit one sideways, it would just spin off the side of the earth, and all its forward inertia was gone. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like that all changed about the turn of the century with the introduction of something we now know as the Pro V One. Um, I remember that that first model. There was the the urban legend that you had to line it up. Uh, you had to set the ball in the tee a certain way to get the because the the, sing, the, the hemispheres the right, the, yeah, and that was a guaranteed. <laughs> that was twenty yards extra right there if you if you. Yeah. If you yeah. caught one right there, um, and and here we are. Well, you know, it, have I got that about right? Is that when when golf started? No, I, th- I think I think you're right in that. And but even before then, you talk about the the persimmon drivers, and again, you know, a lot of people, especially younger people, who now here I sound like old man, you know, Grandpa Grace or something, but um they've never played a persimmon club you know if you look at the face of a persimmon driver there's roll across the face from the mm-hmm. heel to the toe and that was there because it created a gear effect so when you hit it out on the toe 
the ball would actually spin back the other way and curve back into play, you know, a little bit. The same on the heel. It would curve. It, the idea was it was designed to kind of bring the ball back closer toward the fairway. Um, yeah. So toe hooks all and, of a sudden, and heel cuts. Yeah, and and you know you you could really work, and if you knew what you were doing, you could really work the ball. And then, of course, they always say you know when you hit it in the screws right dead in the face, and that that sometimes did feel like twenty or thirty more yards. But then when they changed to the metal driver with you know tailor made, and I, I believe the Pittsburgh persimmon was the first one that they that they introduced. Um, they took some of that roll that out of the face, and so now the with the smaller head. If you hit it out there on the toe, it wasn't coming back. It was going. So there was more dispersion. And then somebody figured out, well, we can make the face bigger. And then so that the drivers just grew and grew and grew. I have an old Founders Club driver on my workbench in my um, in, in my garage. And it is the size of a modern day. It's smaller than a three wood. And, and that was um, those were good drivers. <laughs> back in the in the uh in the early 90s which is it just it seems crazy how things have not just move forward they've leapt forward you know it, it was interesting i'm not much of a gearhead i was never a techie and i remember the first driver i bought with my own money was was a tailor-made i don't know so it right around 2004 2005 it was you know, 300 and something cc's. And I, I remember the first time I swung it, I was like, this is a waffle iron. And, you know, now that the next time I bought one, I think was, you know, maybe 2010 and we were up over 400 on the, that club. And it was just, you know, it, it took some getting you to used to go going back and picking up some of those small drivers. Now the can't imagine the, the ball was as big as the head of a five wood. I mean, it was, there was an imbalance there. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the, you know, yes. And you probably had the bubble shaft in some of those tailor made drivers. Yes. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it was all, you know, all in the name of allegedly, I guess, making the game easier for the average Joe Hacker, which is me, you know, somebody mm -hmm. that has uh, picked up the game. Yes. And it went, it went further um, for sure. The bad ones. Some of the bad, the technology's gotten to the point now that the bad ones aren't nearly as bad as they used to be, and the good ones uh, seem to go uh, a little better than they used to. But I'm hitting the ball, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm hitting the ball farther now than I ever have, even when I was 18, 19 years old, which is, I think, is probably pretty common across golf. It's definitely, uh, there's great jokes about, you know, Fred Couples is such a better athlete now than he was in the, the 80s and 90s, because he's hitting it every bit as far, and, you know, he was... Boom, boom. He was, he hit it off the earth. Uh, right. In those, with those links hats. Right. Everybody wanted to be Freddie and everybody wanted to be Fred Couples. Yeah, Mr. Cool. <laughs> and um, the, um, but you know, you hit on a good point there uh, just a second ago about the, um, and now I forgot what it was, but um, about the, the club and, and the ball. But they go through, you know, generations and, and leap forward and all in the name of making the game better and and you know in full disclosure if, if people who are listening to this podcast um i wrote a golf column in a in some regional and picked up a handful of times in some national public golf publications for years uh in a column called lip outs l-i-p-o-u-t-s which is 
also my Twitter handle. But the um, all 88 of those columns are posted on at lipouts.com if anybody's interested. And I used to get a lot of uh, yeah, angry emails. I'm going to call them hate mail uh, by people asking me why I was why did I hate the USGA? And I don't hate the USGA. I just asked questions about why decisions were made back at that time. And this is going back, you know, this is, I started writing that column in 2020 or 2021. No, I'm sorry, 2000 or 2001. So it's been over 20 years. Um, but the questions I asked were, and, and I, and I do to some extent believe this, I've seen nothing to contradict it. And, and, you know, been in the business long enough, nobody's come up to me and set the record straight, but, I think that a lot of manufacturers came to the USGA and said, look, we can grow the game if we can make the club easier to hit and and make the game more fun and bring more people to the game. But we need a little help and we need to make the driver bigger so that this technology and yada, yada, yada. And I think in the on the heels of the um, – Groove Gate, as some people called it, with Ping and Karsten and Solheim versus the USGA. I think that they were. I think they wanted to kind of present themselves as yes, we are here to to help the game. We're not the bad guys trying to police everybody. And I think they allowed it to get a little bit out of hand. Now, there are people today, and you listen to different podcasts, and I listened to a couple the other day, and there are people at both ends of the spectrum about the ball rollback. There are some who are screaming that it's the death of the game and why would they do this when participation's at its highest it's been in years and, and why are they trying to, to hurt the game? A lot of those are the same people who in 2018 when they announced the Insights, uh, the Distance Insights project, they, start, they were screaming that, you know, nobody's playing golf anymore. Why would you do this right now when nobody's playing the game? Um, and then there are people on the other side uh, who don't think they've gone far enough. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and Jeff Shackelford said that, you know, it thinks it's a good start. It's not going far enough. So typically, you know, I'm one of those people that when you hear two sides of a story, the truth somewhere in the middle and, and it may be one side or the other of, of the center point, but there are, there are a lot of people out there um, yelling about how this is going to hurt the game and, I, even though I don't have any particular thoughts about the rollback per se, I do have thoughts about people who have um, histrionic opinions. And sometimes it makes me wonder why. And you know, are some of those people, um, you know, maybe some people have sponsorship deals with golf ball companies, or maybe uh, there's some other, motive behind their opinions i don't know i'm not I, I again it's just it's so some of the claims on both sides are so outlandish that it just makes you wonder why you know they don't protest too much you know and it's a, a barrel full of octopus tentacles with all the different angles to this you know the who is going to affect how it's going to affect it, the for people that haven't read it the, the nuts and bolts i think boiling it down to its it's smallest, uh, <laughs> get it down to a couple of sentences for people that are, are now still wondering what we're talking about. USGA and the RNA, the two gov the two biggest governing bodies in the game of golf. Uh, so in 2028 for the professional game and the, I guess maybe the, some elite 
competitions in 2030 for everybody. They are uh, rolling back the golf ball in what the, in a way they are changing the speed at which they they test for a ball to be conforming, how far it goes at a certain swing speed on their they have a robot, Iron Byron, that they, I guess they test all of the balls, um, and they are changing the the speed on that from what they're going up to one twenty five or one twenty eight um, to one twenty five from one twenty. Okay, so they are, are bumping it up all in with the express purpose of limiting how far the golf ball goes at the highest level of the game. You know, I'm a a, a mid single digit handicap that swing on a good day, maybe I can get my club to move a hundred miles an hour. I'm going to see it, from the data that I've seen, I might lose if I, on my best drive, I might lose 10 feet, not 10 yards, 10 feet for the, the elite levels of the game that, you know, at a hundred guys that swing 125, 130 miles per hour, they might give away a handful of yards. The target is 5%. So maybe, maybe 10, if you're hitting it 320, if you're one of these just freak athletes that can square up a ball. So, and at the lower swing speed for the, the average recreational player that swings maybe 90 miles an hour or less, we're talking about six or seven feet that they may on their best drive that the ball is not going to go further down the fairway. Um, so I, I get kind of that, that side of, you know, that's a good start. A difference like that. Um, you know, from your industry, you know, the, the, the distance insights, um, you know, all of that started happening at the same time that, you know, the national golf foundation said we needed to build a, a golf course a day, you know, for X number of years to catch up to demand. So, um, just anecdotally tell people how over the last 30 years, how much of your business or your, your colleagues business has been just lengthening existing golf courses. I mean, the, adding land, adding physical land that has to be taken care of uh, to a golf course to quote unquote, keep up with, um, you know, the ball going further. No, that, that's definitely um, a part of it. And, and I think in some corners, well, I threw a lot at you there. That. Attack I'm whatever, at attack whatever that's you can. That's fine. But let's put a pin in that and come okay. back. And actually, in the uh, in the middle of that, I could hear you, but my left AirPod went out. So anyway, I got the, the other one in <laughs> now. So, oh, technology. Anyway, um, so yes, the what used to be from twenty years ago, a one hundred twenty mile per hour drive. They're increasing the speed to one twenty five, but the limit of the overall distance standard will remain unchanged. Do you know what that number is? I do not. I'd have to go back and look. Okay. 317 yards. So at 125 miles per hour, roughly 183 mile per hour ball speed, the spin rate is limited at 2200 RPM, the launch angle of 11 degrees. So that's negligible versus what it was 20 years ago. But <clears throat> They're increasing the ball speed like six miles per hour coming off the cliff face. The ball cannot travel more than 317 yards with a three-yard tolerance. 317 yards. So this, I just, I don't think the 317, recreational 317 yards player, is a fun short par four. <laughs> well, the, the, the recreational player 
for all, again, for all the wailing and gnashing of teeth, I really don't think it's going to have that much of an impact. And then, and then of course the, the last thing was a week or so ago, people said, Oh, but you, you have to, you're going to take that difference on every club. And now you're going to have to hit this bar, this club, this club, how many recreational players, a, and, and again, I, I'm, I was a pretty good player at the time. I was a single-digit handicap. I literally play three times a year now. Um, I just too much going on. It's my own fault. I should make more time to play. But um, I could still go out, and if I'm hitting it okay, scrape it around and, you know, shoot around 80. So, but the recreational player who's just out there having a good time, how many of them know how far they hit their driver? Maybe less than a percent. I mean, if that they're, they're hitting the driver and then they're getting their yardage and then they're hitting the next club. And I mean, how many times do you go play a par four? Dude? And out of 10 times on that par four, you hit the same club into the green every time. Twice, maybe. Yeah. You know, if so lucky. that's, yeah. And so they're basing the people who are really worked up about this are based on data that is extrapolated from a machine that hits the ball in the screws every time and has to hit it less than 317 yards at 125 mile per hour uh, club head speed. The recreational golfer, that's why I keep saying there's not really going to be an impact. Yes, you might lose a yard or two here or there. It will be negligible and not noticeable. You might, on a par three, have to dial in your iron play a little bit more, um, but that's okay. You know, I, people talk about, oh, everybody's going to have to build new tees, or everybody's going to move up a tee. I, you know, what? That's okay. Do that from time to time. You know, mix it up, play from different tees when you go. That's that's the whole reason that we, as golf course architects want to provide different tees and greens that are big enough for different pin positions and different angles and fairways with different ways to play a hole and hazards that line up and, and you can challenge them or not, you can play away from them and there's risk and reward. Now, all these things you go into it. You know, we don't, we're not just throwing something on a piece of paper. And I really don't think for all the, the beating they've taken that the USGA and the RNA just pulled these numbers out of the air as some people would suggest. Now, where do they get the numbers? I don't know. I mean, maybe some of them are arbitrary and they work back to the numbers, but they say they've got the data to back it up. So unless it's proven otherwise, I mean, you know, I'm willing to accept that. But it's not like they're saying everybody's got to go back to a gut of percha ball or a feathery and uh, hickory shafts. You know, so I don't think everybody's really worked up about the recreational golfer. I don't think, and I may be wrong, but I don't think I am, I don't think the recreational golfer is going to see that much of an impact. Definitely not enough to drive them away from the game. Hell, it might be enough that they say, wow, I'm playing from a spots I've never played from before on some of these holes. I kind of like playing different tees from time to time. Uh, wow, this hole is really different. You know, this is a lot more fun than just playing the same tee every time. I, we used to go play a golf course back when I would play more often. Um, and from time to time, we would play it from the forward tees and all the par fives were par fours. You know, it sounds like, oh, that'd be easy. It wasn't. No. Because now you're hitting balls in places where you've never hit it before. You're having to lay up on some places and really think about where you're laying up to and, and where the pin is and do I want to hit it over here or hit it over there. It's a lot of fun. And it make it the thing about and I'm I'm 
sorry, I'm kind of rolling over. You're not giving me a chance to talk. But the the thing about golf is, at the end of the day, if you walk off the golf course and you think, I had a good time, I can't wait to come back, either because I like this golf course, I met some new people when I was playing, um, or, you know, I really think I could do better than I did. I got to come back and try to improve. And that's the the beauty of the game of golf, that it, it can attract people from multiple generations. You can meet people that you never would otherwise meet. And now you have something in common and everybody wants to get better. And I'll, I'll make this point real quick because you helped me with this poll. Um, and a few other, uh, Will Bardwell and a few other people helped me mm-hmm. push this poll out. Guy Cipriano from uh, <coughs> Golf Course Industry Magazine did as well. But I sent out a tweet a couple of weeks ago with a poll, and it just said, if you had your choice, would you rather have eight extra yards off the tee or average, I think, six fewer strokes in a round of golf? I can't I ought to have that in front of me, but I can't. But it was something to that effect. 95% of the responders, or maybe 96%, said, oh, they would definitely rather lower their average score. And, you know, that is that is what makes golf appealing to people. It's a challenge, and they want to go out there, and they want to get better. Nobody ever says, by the end of this year, I'm going to hit at 317. But a lot of people do say, by the end of this year, I'm going to break 90. I'm going to break 80. And and so all this, this just strange focus on distance, 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 really, I don't know. Again, it just makes me wonder, and I'm sure people are going to come out and accuse me of taking a side. I'm really not taking a side. Like I said, I don't, I don't have an opinion. Um, This really doesn't impact my profession per se, because if, we have to add tees, then we add tees. If we uh, have to add more land to lengthen holes, we add more land to lengthen holes. You know, we respond to what the client needs and ultimately what the end user, the golfer, is uh, is demanding. Um, you can we can dig into all the little subsets of all of that, but you know, at the end of the day, does it impact my work? Eh, probably not that much, but. Um, I also don't think it's going to impact the recreational golfer that much. You know, you touched on several things there that I, I wanted to get into that, you know, a, a rollback or a limiting of this amount just at the highest end, that's not going to significantly change the way you think about routing holes and landing areas from tee box to adjacent fairway. Mm-hmm. And, and I would assume it's probably not going to affect your insurance rates or requirements for design because it's, you're really not, so much isn't going to change. It may slow the the rate of growth um, of how far the, the ball goes. But, uh, you know, at the elite level, kids are going to are getting more athletic and they're going to keep trying to chase the distance. And we're talking about the the top one per one tenth of one percent. I mean, to, to put this in perspective, there are some they might be a little dated, but there are some swing speed charts out from the track man and, and other kind of score uh, data compilation sets and, you know, someone that hits it, we're talking about 125 to 120, 120 to 125 mile per hour swing speed and 317 yards. Just for perspective, I think the, the tour average this year was in the two nineties or maybe, maybe it got to 300. Um, and those are 
people that are swinging that speed or higher. The average LPGA swing speed, you know, some say that's where the potential for a lot of growth comes. But, you know, I think the number there was 98 or 97 miles per hour. They swing the club head. And having watched, we went up and watched the the ladies play the Cincinnati LPGA, the Queen City. And they're swinging at those speeds, but they're not yelling four. The, the number of balls that missed a fairway there, and it's the same for the men's professional golf. You know, the the people that can really play the game at that level, are it's crazy to watch because not only can they cruising speed hit it out there further than I could ever dream, but they rarely miss. You know, the, the difference between my meathead buddy that can crank one 300, one out of every five drives, but he has no idea where the other four are going, and he's not sure which direction that 300-yard drive is going. And the the people that really this ruling from the USGA and the RNA are for, there's a gulf between them that's as wide as the Atlantic Ocean. So I just yeah. from, from a design perspective or, or if you're going into, if you're doing a remodel or renovate, is a change like this really going to affect your thinking or the – you know, kind of the, even the technical aspects of what you do uh, with a golf course, Nathan. You know, it has changed drastically in the 30 years I've been doing this. You know, we used to, when you're laying out a golf hole, you used to take your drive from the back tee and you'd go out 750 feet or 250 yards. And that changed to 800 feet or 267 yards. Um, I know architects now because we actually had a discussion about this in Milwaukee a few months ago at our annual meeting about um, routing and things. And, and we you know, kind of felt like something like this was coming. So we were talking about routing and how do you how how do different people route golf holes? And there were a few of them who were designing some some courses that, you know, pretty elite projects and they're designing everything now for 900 feet. So 300 yards to the turn point. Um, I still typically, and again, it's not, it's not a cookie cutter idea because you know, you have different topographies, you have different elevations, and all these things that affect um, each particular hole within a golf course. But I typically am around 800 feet off the tee from the back tee. But I also do it a little differently, um, and this goes back to my days as a assistant golf pro uh, in another life. But I used to go play golf at the clubs where I was working with the members, as you should. And there was a group of ladies at a club near Jackson called Castlewoods, and I would go play with them from time to time. And it was a lot of fun because there was a lady in her early thirties who was a really good player, could really move it out there. It was another lady probably in her forties who was a good player. She didn't hit it quite as far, but, um, but you know, she was pretty accurate. And then it was a, a lady a little older than that. They were all pretty good players, but it was kind of interesting to see these players from different decades and we would go play golf. And, and I realized pretty quickly that here I am playing from the back tees. I'd hit a drive. The others, the, the younger lady usually would play from the, what we would quote unquote call the member tees, the men's member tees. And then the two ladies will play from up the ladies' teams and uh, the two other ladies. And so we would all hit comparable drives. We'd all hit good drives. And I'd have a eight iron in my hand, and they're hitting fairway woods. And um, I thought, well, that's not that's not right. You know, that's that's a little they, – they, if they hit a comparable drive, then they should have a comparable approach shot. And so – 
when I lay out a golf hole, I start at the back tee and go to the green. Then I go from the green and go to each subsequent tee. And again, it's based on where the hazards are, where water might be, where, um, you know, the topography of the site and all these other things that, that play in and the cart path, you know, as to where these other tees are. So they have, you know, a comparable approach based on a comparable tee shot. So that, that has changed. Um, I think that approach, you know, is, is the right one with any changes that come up. But if you're talking about a few yards and again, as we said, you know, not many, not many records uh, can tell you, well, I hit my driver 264 yards. And I, I would dare say even better amateur players could tell you exactly how far they hit it because they have a range. You know, they know if they really need to nuke it, they can hit it this far. They know if they want to make sure they keep it in play, but they want to challenge this bunker down the left side, then they take a little off of it. You know, so there's not there's not like a specific yardage that even the better players are, are expecting. Um, we do a lot of work for college golf teams, short game facilities and things like that. And I've been coaching now. This will be my 14th season coaching a high school golf team. And I can tell you in those 14 years, these kids um, playing anyway, because a lot of them, you know, most of them, it's a small school where we are. Most of them play multiple sports, uh, basketball, football. A lot of them play, try to play baseball and golf in the spring. Um, so they're already, <laughs> that's a choice <laughs> over those, those, uh, I don't know, 14 years. You just, they hit the ball so much further than they used to. And, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that the technology is changing in the last, especially in the last 20 years. No, and that's, that's a good point. You know, there are, that's one of the, the tentacles that reaches out in, in this debate is that it it's, uh, we just have so much better athletes. You guys are the the rollback is going to penalize. You know, distance is a skill, and you're you're penalizing those at the the expense of uh, kind of a romantic notion of the game. You know, some of my favorite golf courses in the world are short golf courses. I love them. Uh, you know, I went to Scotland four years ago, and if I could play Ely um, every other day, with, pair it with any other course in the world, I'd never get bored. You know, and that's a a six thousand yard golf course. Uh, Mid Pines is kind of the same way for me. You know, I love all that stuff down in the Sand Hills of North Carolina. Um, Tobacco Road, I love the the carnival aspect of that. But if I could walk Mid Pines every other day, pair it with any other golf course in the world, I'd never be bored. Um, and those are not no, hey, those are not particularly hey, long golf courses. You know, and and there are people who are like, well, why are we just trying to protect a handful of old golf courses? And and that's I don't think that's accurate either because there are a lot of older golf courses that um, are difficult to lengthen because of the way they were originally routed. You know, there might be the, a green directly behind a tee. And so you really can't add a tee back. Well, I, I, it, here's a perfect example. Hattiesburg country club, um, former PGA tour event, great club in South Mississippi. If you ever get that way, call me, we'll go play. Okay. Um, hosted the Magnolia Classic for years and years and years opposite the Masters. So there were people, Fuzzy Zeller, Paul Azinger, Payne Stewart, they all, all these guys played, Nick Faldo, they all played the Hayesburg Country Club in the Magnolia Classic before they were eligible to play in the Masters. In fact, I want to say it's Payne Stewart's 
second tour win was there, but don't hold me to that. Um, so anyway, the it's an old Press Maxwell, not Perry, but mm-hmm. Press's son, uh, designed from 1959, and we went in and redid it in 1999. Now, it still holds up today, I and mean, it's a great, great club. But there's one problem in his original routing that we could not work around, and that is the ninth hole. It's a par five, and the back tee backs up to the eighth fairway, and everybody just bombs it over the corner. And if you get over the pine trees, the better players who can hit it a long way, you know, they've got a mid iron into a par five. So, you know, we've talked about for the last couple of years, I was actually down there two weeks ago. um, Jeff Bloom from Houston was in town with his son and we actually went out and played and we were talking about this, but um, I've had discussions with the owners about swapping the par four fifth hole, which is a long par four. Uh, but there is room to add to add some tees behind it, behind the fourth green, and make it a short-ish par five, and then just make take some trees off the corner and make number nine a par four. So there are things like that that we're, we're kind of forced to look at. And this is a course that up until 1993 hosted a PGA Tour event. So... That hole, which was a par five for the PGA Tour players, um, I think later on in, in later years, they actually played it as a par four. But when that tournament started, that was a par five. And the members still played it as a par five. And, and it's really, it, it, the reality of it is the way it can be played now because of the way the, the ball travels. Uh, you can play it as a par four if you can get over the trees. Now, you mentioned fitness. Um you know, we're, I know we're, we started out ostensibly talking about the ball, but these are all just puzzle pieces in this mosaic of distance that includes equipment. And by equipment, I mean drive, the driver primarily, but also irons, um, the ball, the fitness of the players, and maintenance. And, um, you know, just maintenance alone, golf course superintendents today are so – much more advanced in education, in uh, applications, and equipment, and things that they can use and utilize, and and uh, you know, superintendents today are are the ultimate professionals in their craft. But what you have many times is members coming back and saying, "Well, I went and played the member guest, and these greens were, you know, they were stepping thirteen. And, uh, man, the fairways are so firm and fast, which is another thing the USGA proposed years ago was firm and fast. And so if your fairways are firm and fast, guess what happens to the ball when it lands in the fairway? It's going to roll out more, you know, so it's maybe not necessarily carry so much as carry plus roll. Uh, even, even Augusta national, when they tried to tiger proof after, you know, he torched the place in 97, um, they, one of the things that they tried to do was they mowed fairways from green to tee, trying to get the grain to mm-hmm. go back toward the tee. And, and, and he just laughed about it when they asked him, he said, I, I think it's great because now when I miss one a little bit, it'll slow down before it rolls out of the fairway, you know? So it, there are a lot of different things people have tried, but ultimately if you look at the way courses are conditioned today versus even 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know, that, that plays a factor. 
and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming golf course superintendents at all. Um, you know, superintendents have to do what their, the membership of the Greens Committee or whatever, you know, demand of them. And if they offer them the tools to do it, then and they do it. And that's what the, the players are looking for. But I'm saying we can't, we can't overlook the fact that if your fairways are firm and fast, then the ball is going to roll out more. I mean, that's, that's just part of it. Fitness, as you touched on earlier, no doubt. Uh, the average golfer today is um, much more fit than they were before. But if you look at some of the guys on the senior tour um, who have put on a few pounds, like most of us when they get older and they're hitting it further than they did when back when they were on the tour, then, you know, that's it's not 100% fitness. I mean, obviously, that that's a part of it. The clubs are a big part of it. Um, there it was some mention of changing the driver. I, I heard a number, and I don't know if this is true, and I, I can't remember where I heard it, but that there's some discussion of dialing back the 460cc driver for better players, and this kind of gets back into the bifurcation argument, but dialing it back to like 290. Well, if the tour players are going to play with a 290 driver, then your college players are going to start playing with a 290 driver even if they don't have to because they're trying to their next step is to try and get to the tour or the ones that who are trying to get to the next step are going to go ahead and start playing that so your AJGA junior PGA all these better junior players they're going to start doing the same thing and so you know that's going to start having an effect if that isn't in fact true but even irons you know the your seven iron today um, was the the loft of your five iron from 15 years ago. And the people at, at the manufacturers, if they're honest, will tell you, I actually had a guy from Ping told me that. Um, they've just, they've strengthened the loft and the number on the iron is just a number. It doesn't yeah. mean anything anymore. You know, it, it's, it's the loft. So between the driver and the irons and the ball, and the better maintenance um, and the uh, better fitness. And, you know, that gets into not just physical fitness, but also, you know, you got your track man and your better training and all that, um, which I think in some ways kind of sanitizes the game a little bit. I, I'd rather watch Lee Trevino go out and hit balls for an hour on the driving range than the uh, 88th ranked player on the PGA Tour. And I don't even know who that is. No. I'm just pulling the number out of my ear, but you know, they've gotten in the last 10, 20 years, so mechanical. Um, and they're, they're like, they're like golfing machines. They just sit there. They're like walking iron Byron's and and I get it. You know, it's something they can replicate and they can get out there and they can play and they can shoot low numbers. You know, I'm, I'm not, it's just the way the game's played now, but I think there's a little artistry in the way that Lee Trevino and Ray Floyd and, and those guys used to play the game where they weren't hitting the ball. You know, these guys today, it feels like to me that they're hitting the ball, whereas the other guys are hitting shots. And that's, I think that's a little bit, Chichi Rodriguez comes to mind. You know, all these guys, they, they would go out there and hit shots. And it seems like today it's more about hitting the ball. And maybe that's why everybody's so, you know, hyperactive about changing the ball. No, that, that makes sense. And, you know, the, Think about who the the most popular guys to have on the top tracer were. You know, you see Bubba Watson move a ball laterally forty or fifty yards 
that was amazing to watch versus if yeah. you have if you had just the the kind of central casting PGA pro you just watch their drives okay you're either going to be a draw player or a fade player and you're probably going to hit the same shot on 14 tee boxes uh and it's going to be the same and it's going to be amazing how far they can hit it and the consistency with which they do it but I'm with you 100 out of 100 times give me Lee Trevino out there moving the ball left to right right to left hitting golf playing golf hitting golf shots rather than playing golf swing um and it, it, it is uh, amazing People, who, and again, most people don't understand. There is a Bobby Jones used to say there's a difference between golf and competitive golf. Now that chasm is so wide because if you if you go and just watch anybody listening, next time there's a, a pro event, PGA, LPGA, doesn't matter. Go to the range and spend like an hour and just watch how consistently everybody hits the ball. I mean, it's it's night and day from what from what we do. It is a, it, so they're already playing a a different game, but again, it's so repetitive and so consistent. And, um, you know, for me, I like to see people hit crazy recovery shots. That's one reason why people like, you know, they gravitate toward tiger and Rory and Bubba and all these people who, cause when they would get into trouble, they would just pull off these and they're Phil even. Oh yeah. That shot Absolutely. The Masters on 13, you know, and that's what made the game fun. So if it becomes, if everybody's hitting it in the fairway and everybody's sitting on the green, and everybody's one or two putting. Well, that's not any fun, you know. I mean, that's that's boring. It would be like watching an NBA game with no dunks. But I can remember like it was yesterday. Uh, I was working as an assistant pro at Big Spring Country Club in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was the 1991 PGA Championship. And we convinced the the pro to give us Saturday and Sunday off. So we went, uh, me and a couple of guys in the cart room went to um, Crooked Stick, and we watched John Daly. And we followed him around on Sunday, because by this time, everybody, he was larger than life, the story. And when we followed him around on Sunday, huge crowds. And just watching him hit that Kevlar-headed driver and the sound it made when the ball came off of it was just insane. And, I mean, he was hitting, if you're familiar with Crooked Stick, there's a net around the driving range. And one goes down the left side of the driving range, two comes across the back. He was not, he was hitting it over the net, over the second fairway, and into the houses on the other side. Good gracious. And it was just, it was, that introduced a whole different style to the game. It brought, suddenly, all these people were very interested because it was just something different, you know. And I don't think anybody thought, well, I can go out there and hit it that far. And I can't remember his first year on tour, what his average uh, driving distance was, but um, I, I would be curious to see how it compares to what, you know, this year's average is. But there were a handful of people who could hit it that far, but he did it flamboyantly. I mean, he was a personality and he had yeah. the long blonde hair and walking up 18th fairway, pumping his fist. And I mean, all of a sudden golf became energized just the same way as it did six years later when tiger came onto the scene so from time to time you have these people who who come on and and do this but it's not solely about distance it's about the shots they hit it's about their personality and those are the things that draw people into the game and again once people kind of once they start playing enough you know they they want to hit the long 
ball. Sure, you know, people say, oh, everybody likes the long ball. And that's true. But as my very unscientific poll proved, um, people are much more thoughtful about their score. They would rather take six strokes off their score than add six strokes to their to their or add six yards to their drive. Uh, I, that's I'm really surprised at the five percent of the people who said the other. You know, I'm team match play, and six you know six strokes off my score lets me beat my buddy pretty soundly. I've got a a stress free last three holes. Uh, on my yeah. my weekly Nassau, that so that that doesn't he doesn't care where I'm hitting it from, you know. And that's funny. Right. The, the the Tiger Revolution. He was never the best driver of the golf ball. He may have been the furthest for several years, but kind of what you're talking about his his mystique, his magic was that short game, that recovery, you know, that chip from that impossible yes. chip from nowhere, and just having the confidence to pull and the skill to pull it off. That's what had you know drew your drew you in. Those right, and and a lot of times the guys who who hit it a long way don't have a short game. Um, you know, it's all about power, not much finesse. That's a very underrated. Daly had a great short game, and I don't think he ever got enough credit for it. Um, but you know, when you have that rare combination of power and and touch around the greens, you know, that's when you get somebody who who um, can win a lot. And especially if they have any kind of personality at all, you know, you have to come out and be um, one of the people, you know, you have to be able to communicate and, and, um, and kind of have that charisma. Some people just aren't born with that. And some people are, and some people can learn it. But if you can combine all of those attributes, then you have a, a daily or a tiger or Rory or, you know, the Phil, even though Phil, I think, upset some people when he left with, with the whole live thing. Um, and that's a podcast for another day. But, but you know, the the focus, the hyper-focus on five to seven yards off the tee, um, I think is, is a lot of fuss about nothing. And people on the other side could say, well, then why are you worrying about doing it? You know, what, what impact is it going to make? Um, I think it's a, it's a long-term play for the USGA and the RNA again to contain the ball at the upper level uh, of, of the game. It's it, without impacting the recreational golfer or, or with very minimal impact. You know, it's funny because you go back and you say, okay, the 125 miles per hour and the, um, the overall distance standard is, you know, 317 yards plus or minus three yards of tolerance. How many times have you seen it on uh, like Rory will get up and, and hit a drive downhill at the Masters or, or wherever, and they're like, holy cow, we hit that one 342 yards. Okay, well, that's still going to happen because mm-hmm. these people are elite athletes. They're fitted to their clubs, which is another thing we didn't talk about, golf, you know, club fitting. Um, they're the best athlete at their sport, period. Well, of course they're going to hit it that far. So it's just not going, I just don't see, it's not going to destroy the game. Um, will it save the game? You know, I don't know. I don't know if the game needs saving. I, it's crazy how a global pandemic, much like the Spanish flu a hundred years before, um, created this new spike in, in golf and, um, which is great. You know, I, I love to see the game thrive and, and not just for our 
work, but just for the game overall, because I mean, it's a great game. You can play it for life. It is. Uh, I've hit two 300 yard drives in my life. One was downhill downwind from the 18th at the plantation course uh, at Kapalua, which everybody should. Oh, hit yeah. Every, yeah. Everyone's got a chance <laughs> to hit that one 300 yards. And one was, yeah. uh, I think, 14 at uh, Kearney Hills, our local Pete and PB Dye course. I had, yeah. had an opposite wind. It's a big downhill. I had about a 40 mile an hour howler behind me one cold day, and the ball just never, it just kept going. Um, so, yes, yeah. it, it's. Were those fun? Yeah, sure. Are they what keep me coming back to golf? Absolutely not. You know, that charismatic pro you're describing, the 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 bigger-than-life personality, all those guys do is perpetuate the myth that they're playing the same game that I am. <laughs> because as we as we talked about at the outset, the gulf between the, the, the way those guys and ladies, increasingly the way those women can hit the golf ball and play golf bears – uh, less and less resemblance to what me and my buddies do, you know, every other weekend or, or once a week. Oh, sure. It, sure. No. Well, it's like, it's like saying, oh yeah, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, I went and played pickup basketball with my uncle and my cousins. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just like the, uh, Golden State Warriors. <laughs> no, not you know, so <laughs> it's just, look, uh, we were, we were watching the Kentucky North Carolina game the other day, which by the way, congratulations. Thank you. And, it's um, nice to win a big game again. And my wife was sitting there and she said, how tall are the players on that team? And I was sitting, I was watching, I said, you know what? You're right. The court almost looks too small for these guys, <laughs> It does. which I, I, I don't know why they haven't widened the lane in college basketball yet. But anyway, so, um, she said, uh, that, that how, so she looked it up. And like the shortest player on the UNC team is six one. He probably doesn't play. Um, there's a guy that's maybe six three, and then it's like six seven and up. And mm-hmm. but I, I, there were two seven footers on the floor. There in the last few minutes of the game we were watching, and um, you know, so it's it's you go back and look at basketball from the early nineties. You know Larry Bird and those guys in their short shorts, mm-hmm. and um, and you know it was a different style of ball. Now there were tall people, no doubt about it, but the game what? has changed because now you watch an NBA game, they come down the floor, they might pass it once or twice, somebody chunks up a three, somebody gets a rebound, it's going back the other way, or somebody you know comes back in on a miss and, and gets a dunk. But you go back and watch Magic and Bird and the Lakers and Celtics back in the day and the ball movement and the passes and all this. I mean, it was entertaining. And it's kind of what I was saying about about golf now is that, you know, you have guys just and girls who are just hitting the ball now. And it feels a little more sanitized. You don't have the the shot making unless they're not in the middle of the fairway, which if to reduce this to meet this new standard the ball has to spin a little bit more. Maybe you'll start seeing more of those, those recovery shots that make the game more exciting. So, you know, again, I think overall it's, it's, it's a good move. I don't think it's a death knell. I wonder why it's going to take four years to implement it. Um, But, you know, the ball manufacturers say it takes that long to, you know, redo everything. Who knows? But you also have to remember it was 1990. I think when the RNA and the USGA agreed to go to the USGA, to the, the American ball, the USGA ball, the little bit larger ball. Mm-hmm. So um, in some respects, you know, this all started 
way back then for the rest of the world because for those who don't know, the RNA is the governing body for the game everywhere outside the U.S. So everybody else around the world had to uh, they were they had a, a distance reduction ho uh, foisted upon them by having to go to the larger ball back in the day. So again, it didn't kill the game. Um, I don't think it's going to kill the game now. And at the end of the day, we just kind of have to see how things shake out. Now, Mike Clayton's got a great stump speech on that because he was he was touring uh, Europe and whatnot when the uh, and everybody in Australia had to go you know change from the the big change the ball and. Nobody gave mm -hmm. up the game and whatnot. So yeah. it was, we, we've been through this before. Um, you know, we were talking about earlier how the, the growth of the game with, um, with COVID and, uh, you know, again, it's, it's kind of strange. And if you look back at the Spanish flu a hundred years ago, it was, it was very similar, but, you know, golf is a game that is naturally uh, socially distanced, quote unquote, you're outdoors um, you're getting exercise and all these things. And so you saw a lot of people coming back to the game. You saw a lot of people coming to the game for the first time and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. And one of the markers that I've always looked at is equipment sales. And the NGF came out just a few weeks ago and said that, uh, that number is expected to grow from like 8 billion annually to like 12 billion by 2030. So people are not leaving the game. Um, people, you know, when they invest a thousand dollars in a set of irons or whatever, they're, they're, they're in it. Yeah. So I think that's a good sign. But, um, a friend of mine who's a golf course architect made the comment to me a couple of months ago that if you're not busy right now, you're not doing something right. And I sat down and looked. we have 13 projects right now in some form of, uh, preliminary design, uh, actual design, construction documents, or about to start construction next month, as in it, one in Murfreesboro um, that starts next month. And so, you know, we just we wrapped a couple of big projects last year, including the renovation of uh, or the restoration of Hampton Hall, Pete Dye's course, and Hilton Head. One of one of Pete's courses in Hilton Head, and. Um, the renovation of colonial in memphis which was a lot of fun there's a lot of a lot of history there um so you know things aren't really slowing down um and i've it's just been a real blessing but i have carved out the last couple of weeks of this year to try and stay home that said had something that a family matter came up last week um and so i've had pushed back to site visit headed to the Delta of Mississippi to Greenville, uh, Mississippi this afternoon, Greenville country club. They have an, Oh, and actually this, this dovetails nicely to what we were just talking about. I didn't think about it, but their 18th hole has become obsolete because of distance. And it's a, a dog leg left, um, uh, finishing hole where all the big players now hit it left of the trees over the tennis court and, uh, cut the dog leg off. And they used to not be able to do that years ago. So we're they've hired us to find a way to fix that without, you know, in course out of bounds or something goofy like that that I, you know, you hate to do. Yeah. Um, but that's a perfect example. You know, you asked earlier the uh, project that that I, I apologize, that should have jumped in my mind 
right off the top of the bat. But um, yeah, that's the perfect example of people who realized, hey, I can hit it far enough to get over the tennis courts and uh, you know have a flip wedge into this green. And so we're trying to, what we have to do is make the fairway more appealing than trying to go the other way. And there are a lot of very large oak trees out there that are probably 100 plus years old. Um, and so different things that, that we can do to to try and create that scenario. Because that clubhouse isn't moving. <laughs> and those, That's those, right. And those, and those, those tennis courts aren't moving either. Yeah, nobody wants to wear a helmet playing tennis. <laughs> no, and, and what happened was they lost a couple of trees in a storm. And when that happened, the guys were standing on the tee. And as they were explaining to me, they went, oh, let's just go that way. And once they realized they could hit it through there, um, which is fine unless somebody's playing tennis, right. you know, and you don't, and you don't pull it off. So, um, you know, again, that's one of those issues where safety, uh, becomes a, a major concern because people hit the ball further now than, than they used to. And so, you know, mother nature took out a couple of trees and we have to step in and try to come up with a solution. You know, I tell people from my legal career is, you know, if nothing ever went wrong, no one would have ever come and seen me. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure the law, the attorneys at the club probably have a different opinion on what we should do, but I want to get people going down the fairway, not trying to cut it over the tennis courts. I, I think you're on the right path there. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. See, I told you Nathan was smart. It helps that he thinks before he speaks something all too rare on far too many topics in golf right now. Uh, take a few moments, poke around Nathan's website for Watermark Golf. There will be links in the show notes. He really is a deeply thoughtful, almost renaissance man. His resume of courses spans across the country. Uh, he's currently working on... I forget what he said. I think he said 13 new projects everywhere from Texas to the Carolinas and Chicago's all the way to his beloved Gulf Coast. Uh, have paint gun will travel applies to him as it does few others in his industry. Uh, perhaps most importantly to me it is something um, that he announced right after uh, we finished recording. He was informed that he has been awarded or commissioned to create a master plan for the club uh close to my origin point, the Bowling Green Country Club in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I actually lived in Bowling Green until age 13. See this right here? That is a painting of Fountain Square Park in Bowling Green, Kentucky, a place still near and dear to my heart, even though I get there far too little these days. Um, I didn't grow up in the country club life, but I did uh, know a lot of my friends were people whose families belonged out there, and they grew up playing golf out there. So, um, you know, we don't have many what people refer to as the objectively great golf courses here in Kentucky. So anytime that a really talented architect like Nathan gets to put his imprint uh, on our golf in our state, it's a big deal and we're all better for it. So um, I know very little about the course down in Bowling Green. It's an old club. It's more than, I think it's 110 years old um, or somewhere in that neighborhood, 105, 110. Um, so, and it's an older course. But I'm, I'm 
excited to see what he can do with it. I've got several friends uh, from golf in that area. So anyway, congrats, Nathan. Very happy for you and glad to have you working in Kentucky. For all of you, I hope you enjoyed what you heard here today. And look, I'm sorry. It took me a while to get back behind the microphone. Begging all your pardon. I do have a plan for this fifth season of the Blind Shots podcast. I'm excited to uh, dive in and bring it to you. I've got some stories and some opinions that I think you'll enjoy or in the very least will make you think this year. Uh, The free advice remains the same as ever. Remember to hydrate, sit up straight, and as always, when you have the choice and the chance, do decide to go for it and take dead aim.